Well, you all get gold stars for sliding in here this morning. Snowmageddon. You all made it. You're looking around thinking, where's the rest of my friends? Well, pull out your smartphones and text them and say, I'm in church. Where are you? Okay. Um, This morning, you'll have a chance to pick up a piece of paper on your way out if you want to. It says, uh, moving forward across the top. John Palmer gave a presentation to the church about two weeks ago in regards to our facility and our attendance and our finances and what's going on in the church. This will give you some information and details about that report that he shared. As well, we're going to be sending a letter out later this week, but these are out in the back of the church and in the atrium. It'll give you some information about some of the discussions we had about the potential for a new facility. So it'll give you a little background. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 28, if you have your Bible with you and you can Take a minute to turn there or pull one of the Bibles out of the pew rack, or you can follow along on the screen. The verses will be up there as well. I'm going to start out with uh, John 17, and we'll work our way over to Matthew. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you do that? Father, we quiet our hearts right now, recognizing that we're about to look into your word, which you have declared is holy, and you have guaranteed it will not return void to you. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. Your word is going to be examined this morning, and we ask that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding and things that might have been a mystery to us before that we didn't quite get that you would make clear. God, I know that you can speak to each individual person here. Encourage us and bring conviction where you need to bring conviction. Strengthen us. We pray for insight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that on the night that Jesus instituted the Last Supper, we celebrated communion this morning and participated in in the bread and the cup, that night that that was instituted was the same night that Jesus was arrested. Not just the night that he was betrayed, but the night that he was arrested. So he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been in the upper room, instituted the Last Supper, and as they're walking to the garden, either they stopped along the way before the garden, or while they just made it into the garden, Jesus begins what's known as the high priestly prayer. A very long dissertation. Takes up an entire chapter in the book of John, John 17. What you're going to see on the screen is is part of that. It's verse 3. It's kind of the intro to it. And it's Jesus talking to God the Father about what's gone on while he's been on planet earth. Look with me on the screen at John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. This is Jesus speaking now again. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he's kind of speaking in the third person, talking about himself. And he goes on to say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Can you imagine, in your wildest imagination, being able to stand before God the Father one day and say to Him, I've done everything that you asked me to do? See, there's only one person that can say that. I can barely remember to take out the trash on Tuesday morning. Jesus said, I did everything, accomplished it all, and as a result, I glorified you. Having accomplished the mission, that's why he glorified him. He did his mission. So it it begs the question, what was his mission? Here's why I say that. 
it may surprise you to know that there's a lot of people that are confused about why Jesus came. Even in churches, there's a lot of people who would say they don't quite understand it or they have a take that might be different than yours about why he came. What was his mission? Well, we know what his mission was because of his mission statement. 1 Timothy 1.15, it says this specifically. It is a trustworthy statement. So Paul's setting us up to understand this is the mission statement. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if I asked you this morning, looking back over 2013, how many times you shared that truth with people that you know, how would you respond? In, in the midst of your God talk, maybe conversations came up in the lunchroom at school or, or in the hallway or in the office or in your workplace, maybe your neighborhood. If, if that kind of God talk came up, were you bold enough to put it out there and say, this is what I believe, this is what I know, and this is what I stand for? Some here might say, I did that like five or six times last year. Some here might say two or three that I can remember. Some would probably say zero. Matter of fact, the majority would probably say zero. It's not necessarily a majority that you want to be part of, understand, but that might be where the majority lands to say, I I really put it out there and I shared Christ with people. However, we're told that's what his mission statement was, was to let people know why he came and what he did. So let's go to Matthew 28 this morning because Matthew 28 is this, this apex, it's this major focal point in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's not an exaggeration to say Matthew 28, 16 is the focal point of all Scripture. Here at New Hope, we've identified our four core purposes by these four things, learning, loving, worship, prayer. If you pick up one of our ink pens out of the pew rack this morning, or you pick up one of the bulletins, it's going to say learning, loving, worship, prayer on it. You get a letter this week, it's going to say learning, loving, worship, prayer. Those are the functions of what God has called us to be here at New Hope. We learn in such a way, we love in such a way, we worship in such a way, we pray in such a way as to point people to Jesus Christ. That's our function, but that's not our mission statement. Our mission is the same as Christ's mission. First Timothy tells us that his mission was to come to save sinners. So our mission is his mission. This is what he said, John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So just the same way that Jesus came, he sends us out to do the same thing. So if we're in agreement this morning, Jesus' objective in coming to earth was to seek and to save. Would you agree with that? Okay. If you agree with that, I would go so far as to say this. The one reason that Jesus allows his church to remain, in other words, the reason the rapture hasn't taken place, Jesus hasn't returned, is because he's keeping the church here to seek and to point people who are lost to the Savior. It's the function of the church. It's what we're supposed to be doing. It is our mission. John MacArthur summed it up this way. I want you to see his quote. Fellowship, teaching, and praise are not the mission of the church, but are rather the preparation of the church to fulfill its mission of winning the lost. Just as in athletics, training should never be confused with or substituted for actually competing in the game, which is the reason for all the training. Here's the truth. In heaven one day, 
you're going to be able to praise God. You'll praise Him more fully, but you'll praise Him just like you praise Him here on earth. You're going to be able to talk to God. You talk to God now through prayer, but you're going to be able to talk to Him face to face. Be able to worship Him. We'll be learning about Him. But there's one thing you won't be able to do in heaven, and that is lead people to the feet of Christ. See, that's a time-limited opportunity. It's something you only get to do on planet Earth. It ends when you step into eternity. You no longer get that privilege. So with that in mind, let's go to Matthew 28 and verse 16. It starts out this way. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now Matthew only mentions the eleven here, but that doesn't limit the gathering just to them. I'm going to explain that just a little bit further in a moment. It says in verse 16, they went to Galilee to the mountain. Why Galilee? Well, first of all, before the resurrection of Jesus and after the resurrection, Jesus said he's going to meet the disciples in Galilee. But I think not just the disciples. My take is that there was a much, much bigger crowd there, and I'll see if you agree with me, that there was a group of followers prior to the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, there was a group of hundreds of people who gathered together. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote about this. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Paul said that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, this is after the resurrection, People are seeing Jesus in different places. He's appearing around Jerusalem. He's appearing out in the countryside. Two guys are walking with him on a road, a road to a city called Emmaus. But here we're told that 500 people gathered at one particular time. Why? I think they're anticipating an appearance of Jesus. Here's how I know that. 500 people don't gather together by accident. When a flash mob occurs on a scene, they don't do it by accident, right? Somebody organized it. Somebody told them to be there. They were trained in advance. There was some structure to it. Well, 500 people have gathered together. Why? They're anticipating something. Somebody told them to be at one location at one time. Now, why Galilee? Well, that's the northern part of Israel, and that's where most of Jesus' earthly followers were from at that time. Most of the people who believed in Jesus were not around Jerusalem. They were up north in the countryside among the working class people in Galilee. So he's told them at this particular time, at this particular place, to be there. Why? Because as far as serving God is concerned, your greatest ability is your availability. To be available for the things that he's called you to do. Because the most talented, the most gifted Christ follower is absolutely useless to the kingdom if they're not available to be used. Just think about this. The 11 disciples that are mentioned here on the morning, on Easter morning at the resurrection were not at the tomb. They didn't get to see the resurrected Jesus. Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary, they all showed up at the tomb. There are a lot of Marys. They were there. They were available. They got to see the resurrected Jesus, but the disciples were in hiding They were afraid, and so they weren't there. Now, this time, they're going to be there. They're not going to miss out, so they show up at the mountain, according to what we're told there in verse 18. See, the the faithfulness to Jesus always begins by just one thing, simply being available. So they're there, they're willing to be where Jesus wants them. It's the physical evidence of their willingness, just like you being here this morning. You pick up the cup, you pick up the bread, 
You participate in the singing. What you're saying by that, your physical presence here is, I own this. I I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this fellowship. I want to be involved. That's what the disciples are doing. Because they're there, they're going to encounter Jesus. So my take, there's the 500 plus followers, there's the 11. The, The newly risen Jesus appears on the scene. This is not the most capable group of people. Don't be confused about that. They're not the most powerful. They're not the most influential. They're certainly not the wealthiest people. And they come with their weakness. They come with their confusion. And we're told in this next verse, they come with their doubts. Go with me to verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It's possible that the worship of Jesus on this particular day in Galilee has been unequaled in all of human history. They see the risen Jesus. I've been to some big events where some worship of the king took place. I I was at a Promise Keepers event in the 1990s down in Indianapolis. 70,000 guys in an auditorium singing holy, holy, holy. I was amazing worship. The, the, The thunderous sound in that auditorium was off the charts. But I think it didn't even begin to Compare to what happened here. These individuals are seeing before their eyes in a moment the risen Jesus. He stands there in front of them. And we're told this really transparently honest statement is made that some doubted. That's one of the reasons I think this is where the 500 showed up. See, the 11 disciples had already seen Jesus. They ate fish with him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He appeared to them in the upper room. They got to see him, but now we're told there's a crowd here and some of them doubted. We're not told what they doubted, but it is so helpful that Matthew included that detail. Here's why. To me, this speaks to the authenticity of the Bible. See, the writers of the Word, they're not seeking to just whitewash it over, varnish it and make it all look perfect. They're saying there's some honest emotions here. There's some people who came to this setting with doubts and they didn't really understand so what does jesus do you know he's not going to leave them alone with their doubts look with me at verse 18 it says and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so whatever the question is whoever they are jesus comes even nearer his voice is heard in their ears once again they don't just see him they hear him talk And it erases all the uncertainty. In that moment, they're in the presence of the living God. And he's about to make the most absolute declaration that has ever been made. In verse 18, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've lived a few years. I have never in my lifetime or in all the history books I've ever read heard of any other person ever make that statement. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So we better really understand what he's saying when he says, I have all the authority. In in your notes this morning, you're going to see over on the right-hand side the word exousia. It's it's, it's inside your bulletin if you haven't pulled them out yet. But you also see it up on the screen. This, This Greek word really helps us to understand in the best way we can in a human tongue what Jesus was saying. And I'm going to help you to understand this definition here because it's, it's much more complex than just the words that are there. 
First of all, this is kind of a fun word to say in the Greek language. So let, let's say it together. The word is exousia on three. One, two, three. Exousia. Now, you're going to hear that repeated a few times this morning. Somebody came to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, we should get T-shirts made that says exousia on it because the authority that he's claiming here is something that he's giving to us. So let's understand this. Exousia. Now, take the first components of the definition, privilege, force, capacity, and freedom. Those are the components by which the word is made up. Concretely, those elements belong to a magistrate or a potentate, meaning one who has all authority, one who has all power. So take those first two components and put it together. It means that this potentate has authority, has jurisdiction, has liberty, power, right, strength. And where does he say that it applies to? This authority refers to the freedom and the right to speak and to act as he sees fit. So in relation to God, the freedom and the right are absolute and unlimited. I can back that up with Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see this on the screen. It talks about the authority position that Jesus has. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God seated him, meaning Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Exousia. There's a full definition of it. That passage right there states exousia. It means he's got everything. And Jesus said, all exousia, heaven and earth. That means it's absolute. It's universal to the degree, church, that it impacts not only Adam, who was created in the garden, but the baby who was born in the neonatal unit at Sparrow Hospital this morning, and everyone who's ever lived in between. Every single individual ever born on planet earth comes under his authority. Now, during his reign and his time here on earth, Jesus revealed some of his authority. Some of it leaked out. His authority over disease. His authority over demons. Over sin. Over death. Lazarus, come forth. Even to the degree that he delegated some of his authority to his followers. You remember when he sent the twelve out to the villages? We're told he sent them two by two and he sent them out to heal the sick, and to call the demons out. And they came back and they said, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. We spoke in your name and demons came out of people and the sick were healed. Why? They spoke in his name. He has that kind of authority. But there is a power that Jesus possesses which has yet to be seen, which has never been revealed to us on planet earth. He gave us a brief glimpse of it. This exousia potentate talked about it in Matthew 24, verse 30. It says this, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's talking about when He returns in judgment, when He comes back as the final authority. See, this appearing of Him in the clouds 
It's, it's just a whisper. It, it's so magnificent to conceive, but it's just the start of what they're going to see with their eyes. What unfolds after people see him is the truer measure of his authority because he has final authority. Final authority to bring everyone from Adam in the garden to the baby from Sparrow Hospital into the courtroom of God the Father to stand before him and determine whether or not they will be condemned to eternity separation from him or given eternal life with him. That's where John chapter 3 comes into play. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, presuming that you are, probably chances are that somebody told you to read the book of John. John's one of the easier books of the Bible to understand. And by the time you got to chapter 3, you began to understand who this Jesus is. John chapter 3 speaks specifically about what he does. Look with me on the screen at verse 36. Jesus speaking, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What does it look like for the wrath of God to abide on someone? According to the Bible, the person who has the wrath of God abiding on them at the time of death will stand before the white throne. And there's one who will be sitting on the white throne. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Look with me on the screen at this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whom, whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This one is so magnificent has so much exousia that even earth and heaven can't stay in his presence and flee away. So I'd want to know, who is this one who sits on the white throne? Well, we go back to the book of John for that. John 5, verse 22 says this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Wow. Exousia. That's authority. That's the ultimate power that Jesus has that hasn't been seen yet. And notice what he's done here. He's established first his absolute authority and power before going to verse 19. Otherwise, what comes next seems absolutely impossible for the followers of Jesus Christ. It it goes beyond human mind thinking that we could even begin to take on the responsibility of making disciples from every nation on earth in our own ability if we didn't have his exousia. Rick and Sharon might as well stay here and not go to Thailand if they were not going in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Katie might as well not go back to Jamaica if they don't go in the authority and power of Jesus Christ, if you go into the workplace and you try and talk about Jesus Christ to your coworkers and friends, you try and talk to your family members or somebody in your school system about Jesus Christ without his authority and power, you might as well not even open your mouth. But he said, you've got it. So go with me to verse 19 because he says, go. Verse 19 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in light of his absolute authority, Jesus commands one word, go. There's a transitional word that's used there. Go, therefore. 
I don't know if there's ever been a word used in the human tongue like the word therefore is in this particular case, ever. Because what Jesus has said, because I am the Lord of the universe, because I have all authority and power, go. Because I can go with you. Now, here's the truth. Many people treat this as optional. They would look at this and think it only applies to people in occupational ministry. I would tell you I was one of those. My teenage years, the teaching that I sat under as a young man, when I heard the pastor in our church talk about this when I was a teenager, it was clear that he believed that this applied to pastors and missionaries, but not to those of us, or at least that's the way I interpreted it. But ultimately, I came to understand that's wrong. This applies to everyone. It's not just those, because the verse doesn't say, hey, you guys, full-time pastors, go out and make disciples. Hey, you missionaries to Thailand, go out and make disciples. It says, go. And we got this crowd gathered there. And some are even doubting. But Jesus came close to them. And they heard his voice. And they knew. And as a result, they worshiped. Because they know what they're hearing from. So we can't say this is optional. Why does it seem like it should be? Because it's uncomfortable. If we're just going to be honest with each other, it's uncomfortable to put yourself out there. It's uncomfortable to say to your friend who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You need Jesus. It's uncomfortable to say that. So we tend to recoil and we hold it in. But he's saying... Go. Now, he's saying, because of my authority, because of my capacity, you can do this. So this command that's given to us in verse 19 to make disciples is something we really need to drill down into. So let's spend just a minute on that. When he says make disciples, what's he talking about? If Peter was sitting here this morning, the disciple Peter, and let's say he occupied this place in this pew right here, we would say, Peter is a mathetes, Greek word for an individual who's a disciple. But that's not what this word is on the screen, matheteo. Matheteis is different than matheteo. Matheteis is talking about an individual. Matheteo is the word that Jesus used when he said, make disciples. The reason for it is, it's a verb. It's an action word, meaning there's a command here. He's not just describing who you are. He's describing what you do. So if Peter was here, he wouldn't just be a mathetes. He'd be a matheteo. Because a matheteo, as you see, is someone who is a pupil, who is a learner, who is a follower, a scholar. So Jesus is telling us to reproduce ourselves to make more people who are also learners and scholars and followers of Jesus. Matheteo is just this beautiful combination in the Greek language of this word, matheteis and to do, meaning put it to action. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then truly you are disciples of mine. Because Jesus knew that it required someone to not just say they're a disciple, but they're putting feet to it. So here's the assignment. This is where we kind of bear down here in the the last few minutes. He gave us three specific things to do. 
Three specific actions. I think it's in your notes this morning as well. But let me show you what the three requirements are. The first one is, he, he says, go. So go means don't wait for the world to come to you. Don't wait for your neighbor to come knocking on your door when there's six inches of snow on the ground. Don't expect your neighbor to come to your door and say, hey, I hear that you go to New Hope Church. Could I have a ride with you to church this morning because I really want to know about Jesus. Don't wait for that. Go. Go, therefore, because I'm giving you the power and the authority. Go to the world. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. Here's the second one. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you've been at New Hope for any period of time, you know that baptize, the way that we do it here, literally means to immerse. That's the way that we teach it here. Because immersion in water is the word that's used, baptizo. But here's why it's also important. Baptism by immersion is literally a picture of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It's this beautiful image. But here's a third reason that we baptize by immersion. Because it was instituted by Christ. Jesus said, go out and baptize because it's this outward act of identification that you identify with him. Just like holding up the cup and holding up the bread, you're saying, I belong. It's a public declaration. Now, I want to be really clear. Baptism does not save you, but it is commanded by Jesus. A person who's unwilling to be baptized is at best a disobedient believer in Jesus. But baptism does not save you. Otherwise, you'd be earning your salvation through works. And Jesus said, it's not through the works of righteousness that you've done. It's through what I did. So baptism is an identification. Uh, We want to be really clear about this just in case you're unclear. So let me show you something that Jesus said. Mark 16, verse 16. He said this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now that verse makes really clear, disbelief is what disqualifies you from salvation. Baptism and salvation, baptism is just a part of salvation. Otherwise, what do you do with the thief on the cross? Jesus is on the cross. The thief turns to him. Jesus is about to give his last breath. And in the last moment, you talk about getting saved by the skin of your teeth. The thief on the cross turns to Jesus and says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus says, I promise you this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, they didn't take that guy off the cross, baptize him, and put him back on the cross, did they? Baptism doesn't save you, but it's an identification that you belong because we are saved by God's grace alone, not through works that we've done. Uh, Let's move on to the third component. It comes from verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end. See, the one that you follow makes you an armor-plated, bulletproof guarantee. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to show you number three. Number three is teaching them to observe all that I command you. Go, baptize, teach. See, our mission, our objective is, is not simply to convince people that they need Jesus, but it's to disciple them also. We are called to a life of obedience to Jesus. But how can we obey him if we don't know what he requires and what he says? So it's necessary that we study the whole counsel of God. That's why we teach the way that we do here at New Hope. 
so we understand what Jesus is calling us to do. But let's go beyond go, baptize, and teach. Let's look at this promise in verse 20. Verse 20, he said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I like to read old dead theologians' material. And it's because a lot of those guys lived at a period of time when they didn't have the distractions of television or movies or iPads, iTunes. They could think and they could process and be alone with their thoughts. Charles Simeon is one of those guys. He lived in 1827. He, he looked at this passage, and this is his quote. Very simple. But he's saying, Were it not for this statement, no one possessing reason would presume to undertake the task. In other words, if you're going out to do it in your own power, you're an idiot. That's just Mark, according to, according to Charles Simeon, okay? That's what he's saying. If you don't possess reason, you're going to go out and do it. But if you possess reason, you're never going to try and do this on your own. I am going with you. So let's understand this. My, uh, please know that it's not my goal to teach you the Greek language, but I want you to see some of these phrases so you really appreciate what's being stated here. So let me put this on the screen for you. Eduo, ego, emi. Eduo is used many times throughout your Bible. You see it if you have read the word lo, L-O, or if you see the word behold. Behold. You wonder, why, why did they say that? Eduo, behold, means this. Pay attention! Okay? I'm sorry if I woke you up. Not really, but... Okay. That's what eduo means. Pay attention attention to what I'm about to say because it is of such importance it raises the bar. Eduo. Ego. Emi. Pay attention, church. I am with you. I myself. The one who has exousia. You have the guarantee of Christ's own presence. See, God knows that you need to hear this. He knows that we need communion. He knows that we need to hold the bread and the cup physically in our hand to be reminded of what Jesus did. He knows that we verbally need to hear. You're not going in your own ability. You might be going to Thailand. You might have bought the plane tickets. You might have directed how the house is going to be built, but you're not going in your own ability. Right? You might be going into the workplace tomorrow. You might think you have your day all planned out. But if you're going with Jesus, you're not going in your own ability. Ego, EMI. Let's just think back for a moment over time. Go back with me to Mount Sinai. Moses is told by God that he's supposed to go to Pharaoh. He's been called and told where he's to go. Moses' response to God is, well, I'm <laughs> sorry, I don't have such a great mouth. I don't speak that well. God said, but you're going to go do this. Moses' response was, my mouth doesn't work right. How about if you choose my brother Aaron because I talk like a girl? That's not what he really said, okay? <laughs> he said, my mouth is slow of speech. He was the, 
He said, I can't speak right. I'm not a man of eloquent words. God said what? Moses, I am going with you. Who formed man's mouth? Joshua, I want you to go into the city of Jericho. I want you to lead my people into the promised land. I am going with you. Gideon, I am going with you. New Hope Church, January 5th, 2014. Ego, EMI. I am with you. I'm the one who gives you the ability. And look how long he says I do this. I myself, the living eternal one, am with you always, literally to the end of your life. James died. Peter died. John died. But Jesus was with them always to the end of their life. And then he goes one step further. He says, even to the end of the age, meaning for the church at large, even though Peter dies, James dies, John dies, there's new disciples coming up. The church is going to go on to the end of the age. What is the end of the age? The end of the church age when Jesus returns in glory and great power on the clouds of heaven to rule over his kingdom. I am with you even to the end of the age until the Lord returns to judge the world as the exousia. So let's go 360 degrees all the way back around to the beginning. 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul went on to say, of whom I am chief. So if we sit here today on January 5th, 2014, and I ask you this question, December 31st, 2014, how many people did you share that with in the last year? Could you increase that number by one over what you did last year? If you're at zero, could you share that truth with one person? Could God double the size of new hope? Because we took this command seriously? Go. Because you're going in my ability, not your own ability. And the great thing is God believes you can do it. So here's how I'm going to encourage you to pray about this. Many people are left looking at a passage like this saying, what do I do with that? Here's how I encourage you to pray. you got a coworker in the cubicle next to you. you got a boss you want to talk to. You got a friend at school or somebody in your neighborhood? Start this way. Go to the Father first and pray. Because you try and do this on your own ability, you're going to fail. It requires the Holy Spirit to be active in your life. So let's say you got Joe Smith sitting here and you want to talk to Joe. Just go to the Father first and say, Father, you know Joe way better than I do and you love him more than I do. And you know what's going on in his life. Would you give me the words? Would you go before me? Just that simply, church. Come to the Father and say, will you prepare a path? Because I know you love that person and you gave me this mandate, so open up the door. Would you pray with me that way right now? I'm going to pray for you that way. Let's bow together. Father, I'm certain that as many people as are represented in our auditorium this weekend... There are many, many, many more times, many times more 
that could be here. It requires us to be obedient to you and to be willing to share the truth of your word. So, Father, help us to be bold. Some of us here today feel like we lack boldness and feel timid. I would ask that you would take the courage by which they held the cup and the bread this morning and have been a witness to the person on their left or their right. That you would take that same boldness and transfer it over to conversation. That we would be gentle in our speech, but that we would be truthful in our conversation. Because, Father, we know that you sent Jesus for a purpose, to save those who are lost. So, Father, I ask that you would empower us. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would send us out. We know that you've given us the authority. We just ask that you would give us the courage. So I pray for our church. I pray for us in 2014 that we would be willing to be inviting people to church, that we would be willing to share the truth. God, make us faithful to you. We pray this in the name of the one who has all authority, who will come one day in great power and glory. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of God's people said, amen.